We take um, as our topic this morning the special names for Mary's baby as we turn to a Christmas theme uh, this Lord's Day and next. And we take for our scripture reading in preparation for that message, Matthew, the first chapter, verses 18 to 25. Probably a well-known passage of scripture to many of you, but I think there are truths here which bear repeating and probably some that we have yet to discern as well. Matthew, the first chapter, we'll read verses 18 to 25. Hear now the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But when he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus." For it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Now all this has come to pass, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is, being interpreted, God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth a son, and he called his name Jesus. And thus far, the reading of God's word. The other evening, we were at the Christmas party, and one of the things Harriet had us do was to recount some special or memorable Christmas that each one of us had had, and I thought that was a very entertaining and interesting thing to do. As I reflected on that, it was interesting to me to note the number of different kinds of experiences that are memorable to people, are special, or precious to people. There are a lot of different ways in which we remember Christmas, a lot of different ways in which we remember that there's a lot of different kinds of things that are special to us that we will remember about Christmas or any other thing in our life. But you know, there's one thing that I am sure that each and every one of us here has in common in terms of a very special time of life, and that was your naming. Now, I realize you weren't there. You probably didn't have a vote in that matter. But uh, there are very few children that come into this world that don't have some oh, sentimental and emotional and very special time given by their parents to what should we call our baby? The naming of a child's precious time. Should we name the baby after some relative, after one's <coughs> father or mother or grandfather or some famous relative, an aunt or an uncle? You name the baby after somebody that you especially respect or has been important to you in your Christian life. You name the baby after some biblical figure in hopes that the child will in some way emulate the character of that biblical person. Naming children is a precious time, a very special time. 
Jason and Christine are out, by the way. That was a few years ago the number one choice among people in this country for uh, boys and a girl's name. That's always interesting, too, to, to follow that. They do studies of uh, birth certificates and uh, first names that are assigned to children, and you'll see in some years there's a, a pattern there. For some time, apparently Jason was a very important name, Christine a very important name for reasons that you'll have to guess yourself, I'm not sure, but this changes uh, it's back and forth. Naming children, it's very important. We come in the Gospel of Matthew to the naming of Mary's baby, and the naming here is far more important, far more special, and I dare say far more precious than anything that we would have gone through in naming our children or any child would have gone through vicariously through his parents, seeing this is a special time of naming. What do you name Mary's baby? There are a lot of names given to Jesus in Scripture. In fact, uh, I remember seeing once a poster that uh, had as, uh, as its main uh, point the uh, writing out of all the names of Jesus in a particular pattern that made a picture on the poster. But I was amazed that I could read on and on and on the things that Jesus is called um, in the Bible. I mean, everything you know, from Emmanuel, which we're going to see here in our passage, into the Rose of Sharon, into the Morning Star, and that sort of thing. Jesus has all these wondrous names. I think of the chorus, Jesus is the sweetest name I know, and he's just the same as his lovely name, and that's the reason why I love him so. Oh, Jesus is the sweetest name I know. You know, Jesus isn't just a sweet name because of the way it sounds. It's melodic or poetic characteristics. Jesus is a precious name to us because of what Jesus as a person has come to mean to us. Now, we see things, of course, from the standpoint of after he's been named Jesus. We see things from the standpoint of after he's done certain things for us. But at the time of his birth, all of that was not true. And what I want you to do is to go back before Jesus became a very special name to us who are part of the church of Jesus Christ and to look at the time of his naming and the theological and personal significance of the names that were given to him at that time. The two that we're going to be looking at are Jesus and Emmanuel. We find this account in Matthew, the first chapter, verse 18 and following. Of course, the fact that I say verse 18 indicates we're jumping into the middle of something. There are 17 verses that go before, and if it weren't such a complicated thing that really has to be done on a on a chalkboard or some kind of a chart to show you. I'd love to go through the genealogy of Jesus and show you some of the theological significance that Matthew is communicating to us in the way he writes out the genealogy of Jesus. But look just momentarily at the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus, verse 1 of chapter 1 in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew says, This is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he begins, Abraham beget Isaac, so forth and so on. And Matthew goes on, phrase after phrase, line after line, verse after verse, and so and so begat, and so and so begat, and so and so begat, and so and so begat. You all know, don't you? Because when we get to those genealogies, we tend just to skip them. We say, well, I got the point. A lot of people had babies, right? Here's this line of one after another. 
But uh, there's more to it than that. Trust me, there's more to it than that. We have to look at it sometime to, to find that. But the overall point that Matthew's trying to make is that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's why he summarizes in verse 1 the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We come to verse 16 and we read, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. This verse by itself is just chock full of theological significance. Jacob begat Joseph. Now what line do you expect to follow that after you've heard so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so? We come to Jacob begat Joseph, and you would expect Matthew to say, and Joseph begat Jesus. And now we finally get to the key person in our gospel and the story begins, but that isn't what he says. We break the train of thought. We break at least the pattern that Matthew's been using. He says, Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Of whom? Who is the whom being referred to in this verse? Well, it's not hard to figure out if you read the Greek because whom is put in the feminine form. Okay, so we know he's referring to Mary. Of whom, that is to say, of Mary was born Jesus. And that's a strange way to end the genealogy. The genealogy comes down to Joseph, and then Matthew says, who was married to Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Now, what's the point of all this? Well, in the first place, the point is that Joseph was not physically the father of Jesus. Joseph was not the natural father of Jesus, but Mary was the natural mother of Jesus. Moreover, Mary does not give birth to um, Jesus. It's interesting, of whom was born. It's put in the passive form. Of Mary was born Jesus. It wasn't through Mary's doing. She didn't actively do anything to have this baby. The, you see, the way is being cleared for us to learn that he was born of divine generation, that this is a miracle baby, literally, a miracle baby. Mary is but the carrier of the child. And so it's Mary's baby that we're talking about, not Joseph's baby. But having gotten that point from the genealogy, we have to go on to see that this baby is to be given two names, one to secure his legal status as the son of David, and the other to indicate his real status, or if you want the language of the philosophers, his metaphysical status, that is to say, in terms of being and reality, his true status as the son of God. Jesus is the son of David and the son of God. This is Matthew's message in the first chapter. His legal status is that of the son of David. For even though Joseph did not father him, Joseph, who is conspicuously called the son of David in verse 20, made Jesus his son by doing two things. First of all, taking Mary to be his wife prior to the birth of Jesus, and secondly, by naming the infant at his birth. I think that's the point of Matthew tracing the genealogy of Joseph. Even though Joseph is not the natural father of Jesus, he is the legal father of Jesus. And in terms of kingly succession in the tribe of Judah, it is crucial that Jesus has been adopted by Joseph. 
and Jesus has all the privilege and legal status of Joseph's family. Jesus, then, is the son of David, the son of Abraham, even as Matthew begins his gospel. But, of course, his real status, his metaphysical status, is that of the son of God. He was not David's natural son. He was not Joseph's natural son. He is the supernatural son of God. Matthew emphasizes that Mary was pregnant before she cohabited with Joseph, before she lived with him as a wife, and yet Mary was a virtuous woman. She was not pregnant out of wedlock. We're not to think of Joseph or as or any other man, as the father of Jesus. Jesus was conceived rather miraculously, verse 20 tells us, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 23 emphasizes, and Mary was a virgin all this time. And so God alone can be accounted the father of Jesus. This highlights, then, the deity of Jesus himself, as verse 23 will tell us, as Emmanuel, God with us. So let's go through this passage then, noting how Matthew stresses Mary's baby will receive two names. Legally, he will be Jesus in the tribe of David. Supernaturally, he will be Emmanuel, the Son of God. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. You may want to note that Mary is considered the mother of Jesus, but there's no corresponding description of Joseph. You have Mary, the mother, but you don't have Joseph, the father. Now that is highly unlikely for a Jew to write this way. Highly unusual for a Jew to write this way. The Jews, as you know, were patriarchal in their outlook on family life. The emphasis was not normally placed upon the mother, but rather upon the father. And after all, we've just gone through a long genealogy dealing with Jesus' father, Joseph. And then Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus was on this wise when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. The em emphasis, of course, is that naturally Jesus was born of Mary, but not of Joseph. Mary, however, was betrothed to Joseph. And I need to remind you, you may have heard this before, but it bears repeating that in Jewish thought, the betrothal or engagement period is not as we look upon an engagement period at all. In fact, it's almost misleading to call it a betrothal period, to translate the um, Greek or Jewish idiom into English as an engagement or betrothal, because that concept in our society is far different than the concept that the Jews had. When a young woman became betrothed to a gentleman, in Jewish society, they were married. Now, they weren't married, but they were married. So it was a very strange arrangement. Strange to us, although I think probably a much preferable arrangement than what we have. What would take place is that these two people would be betrothed, meaning married but not consummating the marriage, for a period of testing of their virginity, their virtue, their chastity, what have you their fidelity to one another. And after a period of such testing, that engagement would end, and then the bridegroom would come, and on a very special day, take his bride, and there'd be feasting, and we have the other 
um, cultural customs uh, visible to us in the New Testament of what took place. But the betrothal was considered a legal and binding arrangement, such that, I'll give you an illustration, if a girl was betrothed to a man and that man died before the wedding, she was deemed in Israel a widow. Okay? So that gives you some idea of the legal status. Moreover, if the engagement was to be broken, now how do we break engagements in our society? Well, you give the ring back or you say, hit the road, Jack, I don't want to see you anymore. And that's it. And everybody just, just hears about it. Oh, well, so I guess they're not going together anymore. The wedding's off. Not in Jewish culture. If a man was to break his engagement with a woman, it required a divorce. Okay? And so... Matthew tells us the birth of Jesus was this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, so she could be considered his wife, but not yet having consummated the marriage. When she had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, and Matthew stresses that, there had been no sexual contact between the two. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Pagan mythology is full of stories of gods cohabiting with women, generating uh, strange creatures through their going to bed with earthly women. We don't have that kind of a story or anything palely reflecting that kind of a story here. We do not have God cohabiting with Mary. We have a supernatural, miraculous generation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Not the Holy Spirit taking a human form and having relations with her, but rather simply by his power generating within her the child Jesus. Verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, you see there, they're not really married in our sense of married, and yet he's considered her husband because of the betrothal. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. The emphasis is upon Joseph as her husband because Matthew wants to stress that Jesus is to be born into a Davidic family, into the family of Joseph, as I said, explaining the genealogy um, of Joseph's family in the beginning of this particular chapter. But what we do need to stop and think about here for a moment are the possibilities as to why Joseph wished to put her away. That is to say, why he wished to divorce her. My guess is the most common opinion, and the one which you would naturally hold, given our inclinations as uh, human beings and not uh, unexpectedly, we would think that Joseph here is offended. Here is his beautiful, young, engaged wife, and she turns out to be pregnant. He knows that he's not the father of the child. And yet, being tender toward her, compassionate, he decides that he'll divorce her but not make a public scene of it. He'll do it privately. In, among the Jews, it was possible to secure a divorce simply by giving a writ of divorce to the woman. And usually that was done in the presence of two witnesses, so that if she ever claimed later that uh, the man hadn't treated her properly or there wasn't a, a legal relationship between them, a divorce, the witnesses could say, no, we saw the handing of the writ, we've, written, uh, we've read it, and that sort of thing. However, that was usually for protection. Usually for protection was not legally necessary. A man could divorce a woman privately simply by going and handing her the divorce paper and saying, you're no longer my wife. 
right? We have reference here to Joseph being willing to put her away privately, to take the least conspicuous route to putting her away as his wife. But why? Why did Joseph want to put her away? I say the common opinion is, what would you want to do with a woman who you were engaged to and you found out that she was having somebody else's baby? You wouldn't want her. And this is what Joseph is going through, or so we think. I want to suggest, that though we cannot determine with certainty what the motivation was, that that probably is not the motivation. If you look on, you will read that... Um, when Joseph thought on these things, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived of her in her is of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> fear not to take her. That's strange wording. A man who is putting away his engaged, um, uh, the, the woman that he's engaged to, because she turns out to be pregnant, is not fearful. Not, that's not usually the way maybe offended, angered, insulted, ashamed, any number of things, but fearful is not usually one of the things that will come to mind. And that suggests to me and to others that uh, have written on this that it may be that Joseph knew very well that this baby was not a natural baby, that Joseph believed Mary when she came to him and said, Joseph, I'm pregnant, but I've known no man that Joseph was a righteous man, a tender man, and he believed her. He believed that this child was of the Holy Spirit, that it was a miraculous birth that we were anticipating. But now what would you do if you were engaged to a woman who was pregnant because of a miracle created by the Holy Spirit? Joseph is fearful that he shouldn't touch her that he shouldn't intrude into this kind of divine arrangement. Joseph is fearful, out of deference to the Holy Spirit and the almighty power of God, that this woman should be put aside, perhaps. That she shouldn't know any man. That she shouldn't have normal earthly relationships, much less physical relations with the man at any time. Presumably, Mary explained the origin of her baby to him, and he he believed her and then in deference to the Holy Spirit thought it would be wrong to intrude into that special relationship and so will step out of the way. He's mindful now to put her away but not to make a public scene not just because he's tender toward her though she might have deserved to be you know, shamed if she were guilty of what society might suspect but rather Joseph doesn't want to make a public scene of it because he knows that she's not guilty of anything and he doesn't even suspect her of being guilty of anything. And thus the angel appears and says, Joseph, don't be afraid of this relationship. Take her to be your wife. And it's important that you do so because you, Joseph, are to name the child. Well, I, like I say, we cannot with certainty determine which of those interpretations uh, to take, but I, um, I would think that the context and uh, the character of Joseph, as well as the wording, would incline us, certainly inclines me toward the view that Joseph believed Mary, but thought that he then must now step out of the situation. And verse 20 tells us, however, when he was pondering these things, he apparently fell into a sleep. You can imagine, you know, the situation. Joseph there lying on his bed at night, trying to get this all worked out in his mind, trying to clear his head. What am I to think of this? 
what should my relationship be? And as he's pondering on these things, he falls asleep. And in a dream, just like his namesake, J Joseph of old, the patriarch, in a dream, God appears and tells him what he's to do. When he thought on these things, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him, saying, Joseph, thou son of David. There's the importance. Joseph, thou son of David, you who are in line for the Davidic kingship, you who belong to the tribe of Judah, Joseph, you son of David, don't be afraid to take unto thee Mary thy wife, confirming what Joseph had been told, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. In Matthew's Gospel, it's important that Joseph is the one being addressed here. Joseph, you are to call his name Jesus. It's important that you give the baby its name because that was a mark in ancient society of adopting the child. If he christens the baby, if he gives the baby its name, that indicates that he accepts this child as his own. And you, Joseph, you're to call this baby, this son that will be born, Jesus. Now, early on I told you that Jesus is a precious name to us. We even have that, that little chorus that we sing about Jesus is the, is the sweetest name I know. What you probably don't realize is that in this day and age, it was a common name. In fact, if you look at Luke's genealogy of Jesus, one of his ancestors bears the name Jesus. There is in the New Testament mentioned by Paul a certain uh, Jesus called Justice. Uh, Jesus was a common name, and the reason for that is that Jesus is but the Greek form of a Hebrew name, the Hebrew name being Joshua. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. Joshua in Hebrew means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah, or Yahweh, is salvation. And so Matthew explains that in this particular case, the name is not just the common name, Jesus or Joshua, but in this case, we're going to have a baby who lives up to the name. In this case, we're actually going to have Jehovah save his people. Joseph, you're to name the baby Jesus because it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Matthew here alludes to Psalm 130, the eighth verse, the concluding verse of the psalm. I'd like to read the entire psalm for you. Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Jehovah. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Jehovah, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I waited for Jehovah, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, yea, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in Jehovah, for with Jehovah there is loving kindness, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities." and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now, there's something very important going on here. And you have to be a student of the Old Testament to appreciate it. And once again, I, I chide 
you and myself, that we aren't adequate students of the Scripture. We come to the New Testament, we come to the final third of the Scripture, so much of its importance is missed because we haven't been attuned to all the Old Testament would lead us to expect. The Old Testament had repeatedly said two things. First, God is the source of salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, as Jonah put it. Salvation is of the Lord. When people are delivered, when they're redeemed from a treacherous situation, when their sins are forgiven, we know that comes from God. That was one main theme, that God is the source of deliverance and salvation for His people. But then secondly, and perhaps even more preciously, God promised that He Himself would come to redeem. He Himself would come to redeem. Not long-distance salvation, to use the telephone metaphor, but rather God would come in person and save His people. And so in Psalm 130, you have David reflecting on these themes. Jehovah, if any should stand before you and you were to mark iniquities, who could stand? None of us could stand. We'd all be condemned by God. Our sins weigh us down. Our sins will be our undoing. Our sins will destroy us. But God, but God will arise. Jehovah will redeem Israel from all her iniquities. And so you see the Old Testament anticipation. And now Joseph is told in the dream by the angel of the Lord, Joseph, take Mary to be your wife and name this son that will be born through her Jesus. For he's the one. He's the one who will redeem his people, who will save his people from their sins. He will redeem his people has become he will save his people. Where the psalmist said, redeem, now Matthew says, save. And the reason for that is obvious. In assimilation to the name Jesus, which means salvation, is Jehovah. And Israel, in the psalm, where it says that Israel will be redeemed, becomes his people. Now it's not he will save Israel from her sins, but he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' people will be saved from their sins. And who are Jesus' people? And this baby hasn't even been born. And already Matthew is hinting at the fact, God through Matthew is letting it be known, that there was the anticipation of Jesus gathering a people to himself. Those who would know him as their shepherd. Those who would know him as their prophet. Those who would know him as their master. Jesus' people. And he'll save them. That's a precious truth. Jesus does not save the world indiscriminately. Jesus does not come to the world so that all men might have good will and peace and happy, warm feelings in their heart. Jesus comes to the world to save His people, those who belong to Him. Parallel to this explanation that's given to Joseph is the Benedictus of Zacharias. Remember the father of John the Baptist as we read it in Luke chapter 1, verse 77. Luke 1, 77 tells us the same thing. But he'll come forth to give knowledge of salvation unto his people in the remission of their sins. Call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. You see, the utter obscenity and blasphemy of people taking the name of Jesus on their lips when they're angry. When people, as an explicative, will 
curse out Jesus this and Jesus that. The name Jesus means salvation is of Jehovah. We should be calling out Jesus' name in times of wonderment and awe and gratitude for the fact that God graciously redeems us from our sins. When we experience these blessings, we should be the ones who are saying, Jesus. But instead, the world is the one that uses the name of Jesus to curse. The world, to come under the the wrath and curse of God, uses the name of Jesus. But the name is contrary to it. It means Jehovah saves. Call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. And then the angel adds this or at least Matthew does in interpretation, that it all came to pass that it would be fulfilled as spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. Who will be with child? The virgin. And boy, I'll tell you, the scholarly Christian world has been rocked for years over whether Matthew has misappropriated Isaiah. For you see, Isaiah uses a term in the Hebrew, Alma, that does not strictly mean virgin, or so we are told. Well, it may not strictly mean virgin in and of itself, but in context, you cannot miss the fact that it means virgin in Isaiah's prophecy. Let me give you the setting very quickly. Keep it in mind here. Ahaz, the wicked king of Judah, is looking at the fact that the king of Israel, the king of the Syrians, are plotting together to take him off the throne and remove his line. Now, of course, if that happens, then what happens to the promise that God made to David? That David's son would sit upon the throne, that David's son would be the Messiah. Ahaz is not worried about that, though. He's worried about his own particular situation and that of his family, very selfishly. Isaiah the prophet comes to assure him that two things. God will judge him for his league with Assyria, thinking that it will be all right to go into a treaty with a pagan power to protect the divine promise. And secondly, God will see to it that a child is born who will be the Messiah in fulfillment that all of God has said to David's line. And so Isaiah appears before the king Ahaz, and he says, Ahaz, ask a sign. Ask anything you want so that God may verify to you this message. And Ahaz, in the leading example of mock piety in the Bible, says, oh, I'm too righteous. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Ask a sign of God. We're not supposed to put God to the test, right? Well, no, you're not until God says, put me to the test and see whether I can do what you want me to. And so Isaiah says, Ahaz, you haven't asked a sign, so God will give you a sign, and this will be the sign. A virgin will be with child, and she'll bring forth a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. Now stop and think about that. This is supposed to be something wondrous, something that makes Ahaz stand back and say, God does have power. God is in control. This is of God. Now, would that be true? Would that be the result? Is that what you would expect if just some young girl had a baby? Is there any sign or miraculous value to a young girl having a baby? To a young girl out of wedlock having a baby? To a young girl in wedlock having a baby? Young girls are having babies all the time. There's no sign there. There's nothing special about this. But Isaiah says, and this will be the sign. 
Alma, the virgin, will have a baby. And so now Matthew, I think, is true to the theology of Isaiah, the intent of Isaiah, when he brings out, now Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. But now in terms of our theme this morning, and what shall his name be? Now it's not Jesus, not Joshua, the legal son of Joseph, of the Davidic line, to sit upon David's throne, but now his name will be called. Emmanuel. I remember the joy I had as a Hebrew student my first year in seminary of realizing that I could put these things together. I was learning my conjugations and my pronouns and all these things and I find out that us, you know, the first person plural is manu in Hebrew. I already knew, of course, the preposition im meant with. Im-manu-el. With us. Elohim, God with us. And there's a beautiful name for you. And a beautiful thought at this Christmas season that God didn't simply send a military leader to lead us out of the oppression of the Romans. God didn't simply send some great prophet who could fascinate us with his words and his teaching and his preaching. God did not send us, finally, a priest who would take seriously his priestly role in the temple and clean up the Levitical line and make those services pleasing to God. God didn't send a Savior long distance. God came. Who is Mary's son? Naming has great significance, not only for us, but all the more for the Jews. Because when you gave a name to someone, you were characterizing them. You were trying to capture their essence verbally. And what do we call Mary's baby then? We call him two things. Matthew says we call him Jesus because he's our Savior. And who is it that saves who is it that saves his people from their sins? What had Psalm 130 said? Psalm said, Jehovah will redeem Israel from all her iniquities. Jehovah will come. Jehovah is with us. God is with us. In our very midst, Jesus is God with us to save us from our sins. And Jesus comes to save us not merely in behalf of God, but the beauty of the Christian and Christmas message is that God is with us himself in our very midst. Let's pray. Lord, help us to reverence your name, not to take it in vain. Help us to respect who you are as reflected in these wondrous titles. Help us never to think on your name in a light, irreverent, or secular way but to remember Jesus, our Emmanuel, that most wondrous of all names, common among men, but now to his people, precious. Precious because he is saved, and not simply by looking down from heaven and regarding us in our poorest state, but precious because he's come to live among us and to deliver us and to be with us forever. Lord, how we thank you for this theme this Christmas season, that you are with us, with us not simply to help us when we are depressed, 
not simply to help us through tight moments to deliver us from ordinary problems, but to deliver us from the most difficult of problems, and that's how a sinner can be made right with God. We thank you that you have come to be with us and not left us as orphans in this world, have not left us alone, but have promised that you'll be with us always to the end of the age as Emmanuel, God, not only for us, but God now with us. We praise you and adore you in Jesus' name. Amen.